Hello and welcome to the third Oxford Leadership Knowledge Club interview. So um, today I'm joined by Kishan Nanayakara, alumnus of the 2012 programme. Kishan, welcome. Thank you very much, Philippa. And thank you um, for agreeing uh, to be interviewed uh, for the club podcast. Uh, start by getting to know you a little bit better. And if you could tell us um, where you are in the world and what you do in terms of your main work, but anything else that would be really interesting for club members to know about. Um, so I'm based in Colombo um, of uh, tropical Sri Lanka. And uh, right now, my work uh, engagement is that uh, I'm actually running a company named Resource Energy PLC uh, <clears throat> as its uh, managing director. And I'm also a shareholder of the company. The company was actually founded uh, by me back in 2003. Uh, so we are actually now into 100% renewables. We generate renewables to... Um, uh, to national grid. We are also a company listed in the Colombo Stock Exchange. Uh, but importantly, um, I find myself now actually a student of sustainability leadership, which uh, obviously is a result of some connectivity that I have with my business uh, and the professional interest, as well as uh, uh, sustainability is a lovely passion. And, and love this space to associate yourself with. Uh, so I enjoy being a student uh, right now on that front. You know, it has actually enabled me to connect with uh, uh, some new colleagues and uh, network with different social groups uh, in similar spaces. Now that's a little bit about me. Okay, that's great. So tell us a little bit more about um, the, the, your students. So where are you a student and what does, what is it that you're studying in, in more detail? All right. Okay. Uh, when I actually meant that I've, I'm a student, uh, uh, I actually meant uh, that I'm in the process of constant learning. So I, okay. I consider myself uh, involved in reading, exploring, uh, getting involved, doing things physically on the sustainability front, even with the company that I'm doing right now. Uh, various things like... Uh, uh, having outgrow programs to feed our employees and then uh, work with uh, communities in uh, areas where we have, where we have developed projects uh, to to nurture uh, uh, their livelihoods and then uh, a bit of forestry here and there. Um, interestingly, also I'm um, academically involved as a student as well, so that that has a different connotation as well. Uh, so I actually um, have enrolled myself with uh, Cambridge University for its uh, master's degree in um, sustainability leadership, which uh, gives uh, great insights for me to actually uh, learn about this space and uh, the work uh, done on that front elsewhere. Uh, both, uh, both uh, by the colleagues of the program as well as uh, the institutions uh, and, and, and countries, so on and so forth. 
Right. So absolutely a student in the most, the broadest sense of the word um, and, and doing it in that practical implementation uh, with your colleagues, with your wider community, uh, with your organisation, which is all of the things that we, we learned at Oxford about taking that from, you know, just yourself or your organisation and what you can do within your communities and societies, but also academically. And we shan't go too much into depth about the uh, rivalry between the two universities um, but your master's sounds um, incredible and presumably you're doing that by distance learning at the moment. Uh, yes uh, that's uh, uh, the structure of the program is I think um, we um, we meant to be part of four uh, workshops of about I think seven to eight days each but uh, we missed two workshops because of the lockdowns. But, but I participated in the first one back in uh, September last year. And I have actually uh, hope uh, in being able to participate in the April one and uh, definitely in the September one. Okay, excellent. So tell us a little bit about, because you, you founded your company in 2003. So what was your experience before then? And what what brought you to creating your company? What was your purpose when you did that? Um, I was trained uh, as an accountant. And then uh, early on in my career, I felt actually um, uh, a bit more, I developed more interest in finance aspect, finance side of it. But I think uh, to, to most, uh, it's very difficult to differentiate uh, between accounting and finance. But of course, there's a, a huge difference. Uh, so um, I, I felt that I should actually be more involved in things like corporate finance, so on and so forth. So I actually launched a career uh, in corporate finance and then uh, um, gradually I started working with different employers and finally ended up with uh, uh, my previous employer, uh, which uh, I joined back in 2001 to head uh, uh, it's, uh, it was a newly created uh, function. Uh, the position was called Director Corporate Venture Fund. They, they, they sort of uh, looked at uh, uh, like uh, to set up a virtual fund, uh, which will enable them to grow. Uh, and they also had an ambition to be publicly listed, be in a family conglomerate at that time. So that uh, job gave me an opportunity to... Um, to, to really look for business, uh, new business, uh, look at investments, uh, so, and, and, and really influence the direction of the business. And uh, one, one of the, one of the um, projects uh, or one of the assignments I did was actually um, uh, amongst uh, quite a few others uh, to introduce uh, uh, a project to invest at that time in an all-fired power plant that was part of uh, uh, a joint venture that we uh, eventually secured uh, through a, a government uh, tender. And we built that uh, project. Uh, and, and for that, uh, the, the company, which I'm actually right now part of, which, which uh, is a bit of a long story, which I will actually roll out a little later on in the day, uh, was set up in 2003. And um, then, uh, uh, then, then uh, we, uh, the the main parent company, uh, was able to also 
publicly list uh, because uh, the project was quite a quite a big one, and it was actually at that time. Uh, Sri Lanka is not a very big uh, econ- economy, and it's not a big big country either. Uh, it was uh, at that time was one of the largest um, uh, financial closures, I would say, uh, one of the largest uh, fundraising projects. Uh, so um, that's how we uh, set the whole um, company up and uh, the whole space up. And then uh, since then, uh, we gradually stepped into renewables and then we retired, uh, or I would say we also, before retirement, we we, we sold our stake in the oil-fired power plant because we wanted to position the company eventually as a, a, a renewables company. Uh, and uh, here we are. I mean, that's what I'm part of right now with, with, uh, with a different name, of course. Great. Okay. And did you um, sort of, that change towards renewables, was that, was that sort of purpose-driven? Was that something that you saw as an opportunity? How did you go about that change? Uh, I wouldn't be very honest if I say it was purpose-driven, um, but uh, we... We looked at renewables before we looked at the oil-fired opportunity, but uh, this came along first. So we we thought uh, this was a great opportunity for us to actually invest in and and achieve many other objectives we had in the business. Uh, 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 Of course, when I refer to the business, I refer to the main conglomerate or the parent company. So we stepped in there, but we also had in the back of our minds uh, uh, interest uh, on the renewables, especially I had th- that interest uh, in renewables. So then um, the uh, the large tender business in the energy sector works uh, very differently, uh, especially in Sri Lanka, but but I guess it's, it's the case in mo- most countries. Uh, they are generally tender business. Um, renewables, on the other hand, in Sri Lanka had a slightly different model. Uh, it was not a tender business where you therefore don't have to participate in a tender and uh, the tender would often be whenever the government would actually want to procure electricity uh, or energy that they would call for once you've got to wait fingers crossed till that happens whereas in the renewables if you find a project uh, there is a mechanism called a feed-in tariff uh, mechanism where you uh, would uh, once you find a project be able to sign up for a standardized, standardized agreement rather than a negotiated agreement to sell uh, electricity at a, at a, a pre-agreed uh, feed-in tariff. So that, uh, that space gives uh, opportunity to uh, developers to come in as long as they find projects themselves to invest. So, um, so we, we find our growth uh, uh, objectively would be in the long term be in the renewable space. Uh, when I say we, uh, I'm talking about uh, all the decision, decision make, makers, not only just myself, but whereas I individually had a lot of passion about the renewables, which I'm sure the rest of the decision makers uh, may or may not have had. Uh, so anyway, we, we were able to actually um, uh, invest in our first renewable in uh, 2007. And since then we have been actually crawling a bit uh, because uh, being part of a conglomerate, it's not uh, all that easy to uh, take decisions. It, it's a little slow because there are other sectors uh, uh, seeking uh, funding commitments, so on and so forth, for their own growth. So you get sometimes uh, 
uh, funds rationed out there. So you're going to fight for it. So the growth could actually be slow a bit. Uh, so so that's that's the whole story that eventually unfolded. And, and that led to the, uh, the management buyout, which I would actually talk a little bit later. Okay, brilliant. So a growing passion that you've been able to to take forward and influence others um, as you've built your company um, and gone through your career, which is great. So tell us um, just a little bit about your Oxford experience, if we might leap to there. Um, what made you um, choose to go to Oxford and then what did that experience bring you? Uh, right. First, uh, let me say what I felt about the program. Uh, I was actually uh, in the 2012 cohort, and the experience in one word is fabulous. It was, it, it was a fantastic program. Uh, I looked around for a few AMP programs. Uh, I was actually asked to uh, participate in the program um, because uh, uh, I was to succeed um, uh, as the group CEO of my former employer. Uh, so I looked around, I, I uh, you name it, I looked at all the big programs like Wharton, then uh, INSEAD, Harvard, so on and so forth. Um, actually, uh, Oxford attracted me because it was a concise program. Program was not very long. It was not very short either. Uh, and I felt that I would get an opportunity to uh, be learning based in a culturally very rich seat of learning. Uh, so I liked everything about it, uh, including the small group size, the culture and the demographic diversity of participants and the whole cultural experience that enable um, learning in a fun field uh, and a really chilled out setting. A lot of credit goes to Lalit, who was actually the uh, program director at that time for, for organizing. I know it's, it's not all that easy. Uh, and, and the program helped me to actually break uh, my shackles of my corporatized mindset and to be a student. So it actually simply rejuvenated my learning interest and uh, explorational mind also, which eventually helped me to deal with difficult, complex and unorthodox uh, situations. Uh, so as I said, the reason why I actually came uh, there was that I was to succeed as the as a group CEO. Uh, uh, but of course, it it actually um, led to a completely different path uh, later on. Okay, that's that's really interesting. What I really liked that you said there was that it helped you to to break away from the shackles of a corporate mindset. Um, and I love that as a, a way of describing it uh, and a way that the programme really does get us to think, you know, broader, more society. And Lalit's sort of gentle but persistent questioning all the time about what we're saying and the assumptions that we have. Did you find that? Of course. Yeah. Um, I, I really liked uh, Lalit's approach, as well as I think uh, everyone who was around at that time, Sue, uh, so on and so forth, and uh, and the whole approach, uh, and to actually enable learning in a very chilled out, uh, unpressurized uh, environment, it, it, it was a great way of learning. 
Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to move on a little bit. I mean, obviously, um, this year or this past year has been really quite interesting globally. Um, And I don't know how you've been affected uh, in Sri Lanka by COVID. Um, But how has this last year been for you and your work? And then the second part to that question is, what's what's changed, I suppose, over the the past however many years in terms of your context? Has, Has COVID been hugely impactful or not at all and then just sort of more broadly what changes you've been seeing um i would say our business uh, was less affected but but i was and we are uh, all affected um, as a country i think in the in the first instance we we were able to manage the first wave very well but uh, in came the second wave it actually uh, uh, I think we are right now, even in the second wave, uh, is with a bit of a struggle. But uh, the way we managed the first wave was uh, through uh, extended periods of lockdowns, uh, which I think um, hurt uh, the economy, uh, lots of people, lots of businesses, so on and so forth, especially in the leisure sector, lots of hotels, they were all closed. But our business, uh, business-wise, was not very... Uh, much affected because we, uh, we we were able to operate our power plants and we were therefore able to dispatch energy to the grid. And uh, our paymaster or the employee is um, the utility, which is state-owned. Uh, but of course, the utility uh, did get affected uh, because uh, uh, their collections got affected. So their cash flow position also got affected. So there's a slowdown of slow down in our, you know, uh, receipts. Um, so that way, uh, we, I would say, uh, we, we booked in fair amount of revenue, but uh, we find it very difficult and, and it's getting a little slower in liquidating that revenue. Uh, apart from that, uh, I would say uh, business-wise, uh, uh, it was not too badly affected except that uh, mobility back and forth between uh, where I am based in and into the power plant, so on and so forth, uh, to some degree got affected. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it like, you know, uh, uh, significant. But uh, I believe uh, being part of uh, an economy uh, country, which would have an economic setback uh, last year, I think just seeing the results, uh, the country has contracted by about 39 percent uh, year on year. So um, I'm sure we'll have certain uh, certain setbacks to grapple with. Yeah, yeah. And how about your the people who work for you in your organisation? How have they been coping and how have you been supporting them through your leadership? Um, they have been pretty supportive and also the fact that uh, most of our business operations or generating uh, revenue generating units are in the uh, outstation areas where the covid-19 was not um, was not very much present uh, so so that operation did not get affected so uh, there was mobility a fair amount of flexibility and freedom out there for them to work uh, without getting affected so um, that way, uh, I think uh, we were in a natural setting that uh, our business was functional without too much, uh, too much of an issue. 
but um, in in Colombo, where uh, the corporate office is, uh, where the banking and the, you know the decision making, um, the, the the transactional front takes place. Uh, we were in a virtual environment uh, for a fairly long time. Uh, that was a bit strange, but I think uh, we found we were able to actually adapt and uh, we found uh, uh, that also sort of brought in some level of productivity, uh, especially um, in terms of uh, uh, our ability to take you know, faster decisions uh, uh, so on and so forth. So, um, and also uh, other stakeholders like the banks, uh, because uh, of uh, limited options available, uh, were able to actually give us more virtual connectivity, online transaction capabilities. This may sound quite normal uh, in the UK, but it's not so much so in, in Sri Lanka yet. Uh, sometimes, you know, when you want to do actually online transaction, uh, as a corporate, we need to sign indemnities, uh, so on and so forth. So there was a fair amount of flexibility that came by because of that. And uh, I hope uh, uh, those uh, good things will continue and we would, we would be able to operate with uh, less of a hustle and bustle out here in the corporate world in the center. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I think we can all... Um, look to lots of positives, as you said, some of those uh, through COVID, you know, there will be change, there has been change, and it's not all necessarily bad. And, and you've just highlighted some of those. So that's great. So tell me sort of more broadly, what's changed in your contact, context? You came to, you came to Oxford, you, you set yourself free of your corporate mindset. What happened? What happened next? And what's changed in your context over the past Eight, eight, nine years since you've been at Oxford. Yeah, so in 2012, I uh, came there because um, I was uh, to take over, hopefully in the following year as the group CEO. Uh, but what happened was uh, in the following year, um, my employer backtracked on the plan. And uh, the company I founded, which is Resource Energy, at that time it was known differently, uh, and that was actually uh, ruled as a non-core sector in the group uh, as it's uh, in, in, uh, in, in its future business strategy because uh, the, the, our parent uh, company at that time was predominantly a pharmaceutical FMCG and uh, a mobility-driven uh, uh, conglomerate. And this sector, which I would say the renewable, or for that matter, broadly, the energy sector was something that I introduced back in 2003. Uh, so it was obviously a non-core sector. It was, it was a new sector. Uh, so they, they, they found that you know, they wanted to uh, streamline their future strategy uh, to be focused on uh, the three spaces I just mentioned. And so uh, not only... Uh, in that year, another one succeeded as a group CEO. The business uh, I was part of and I founded was put up for sale. Uh, so then suddenly I was uh, facing redundancy. So it's almost like falling from grace to disgrace. Uh, however, um, my newfound energy and resilience uh, made me to work tirelessly to create an opportunity out of that situation which uh, led me to uh, form a consortium of investors 
uh, along with my management team. And uh, eventually we uh, led uh, one of the largest uh, management buyouts in the country. Uh, So the whole thing, the post-Oxford MP uh, scenario or or the period enabled me to unleash my, uh, I would say, the entrepreneurialism uh, hidden in me. And that actually gave me a new line of uh, freedom and also to the company. And I could say uh, in hindsight, uh, looking back, it has been quite good for us and we have been growing exponentially. Um, so um, tough times, uh, a lot of challenges, unexpected uh, uh, changes to the plan and, and decisions had to be made uh, very, very quickly. Uh, so that that uh, really uh, was not all that fun when you're in the middle of it. But uh, the whole... Um, whole sort of uh, training and, 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 and the inspiration I sort of got out of the Oxford program, uh, I, I found it actually, well, this is just another issue in the business world, corporate world, or, or could be in the natural world. I got to deal with it. And that helped me to actually uh, uh, deal with it, of course, objectively and very pragmatically and emerge yeah. as, a, as, a, as a victor, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of, we have an expression in English is out of adversity comes opportunity. Um, And you clearly seized that, but it can't have been easy. Um, But it it builds you, right? Forms then becomes part of you and becomes one of the building blocks in your journey, um, in your leadership, in your approach to things. Um, What did you, what did you have to unlearn because of that experience, what are the things that you'd sort of been riding on up until that point that you had to unlearn? Uh, so, Philip, my background is actually uh, uh, going back to my early uh, days. I was trained as an accountant. Uh, so, obviously, uh, the accountants are very, very uh, uh, linear in thinking. They are trained to be linear. Um, so, I... I uh, I believe uh, the advanced management program at Oxford um, helped me to, uh, uh, as, as along with those back-to-back setbacks uh, I just mentioned to you, uh, and uh, also uh, you know various other interests that emerge as a result of that, made me to see the interconnectivity of uh, complexities, issues, and. And, and the solutions to those issues. So, so suddenly, from a very uh, linear uh, mindset, uh, I began to uh, think uh, in a circular form. Uh, so when you start thinking uh, or shifting from, let's say, linear thinking to circular thinking, uh, obviously, you would actually be killing the whole routine in, in, in the thinking process because, uh, because of that, uh, and, and the fact that I was able to unlearn my linear thinking uh, uh, approach, uh, I believe I was able to become an entrepreneur myself. Uh, so, uh, and also the fact that it, it, it helped me eventually to be a constant learner and the student in me, here I am, you know, almost nine years hence, 
uh, still a student and hopefully continue to be a student that's that's really interesting do you, do you find now that it it comes to you naturally or do you still have to work at it do you have to catch yourself sometimes and go oh hang on a minute let me think more um well i guess um uh if i'm to uh, sort of uh, say a little bit more about some of the challenges that i encountered during the during the transition uh when 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 we bought over the company uh that i would be able to explain that uh, a bit more uh so um, now when when we were put out for sale uh, we had to actually uh or, or they they uh, the, the parent company said uh, uh we're going to actually conclude this sale in one month and uh, any interested party will have to actually give bids uh, so it was a transparent bidding process so uh you know as a person all my life having worked as an executive um i didn't know you know what what it was going to be so probably at at that moment when it was said that okay we are on for sale i wasn't too sure whether we would actually be eventually doing a management buyout either so uh i had to sort of you know think about this very fast and and work around it uh, if i was actually interested in a management buyout so uh you know doing a management buyout in a period of about a month is uh, almost nearly impossible because you got to actually uh uh you know um team up with uh, some investors because this is a very capital intensive business and the investors should have good chemistry and they should also have confidence and trust in me so doing all of that in the blink of an eye is 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 really challenging uh and and then also as a person who actually been sort of uh going to work carrying a you know briefcase every day as an executive as a professional suddenly to sort of you know become an entrepreneur is within a space of about a month uh is not uh, sometimes thinkable because it uh, uh you know been a, a considerable takeover it also sort of you know meant that i would actually be investing all my life savings including my pension savings plus borrowed money uh in in business and uh, in in fact in my case i had to also mortgage my my house uh, uh so 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 i had to put my neck in the line and that that had to be done very fast so uh the you know the the whole um uh, oxford experience i would say uh and and my ability to sort of you know um uh, eventually think in a very secular form uh really sort of you know uh, cemented through this you know uh, transaction eventually to 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 have that confidence that is required to to encounter um uh, real challenges uh not only as an executive but also as someone who put this neck on the line because you know when you're a, a shareholder or an owner of a business that goes down along with it you go down so so you start thinking uh, very broadly not not just like an executive only so you start empathizing different sides the employer side the shareholder side the other stakeholder side uh, and you you sort of start graduating to higher and higher levels and you get a like in you know, a bigger birds eye view of the whole scenario 
uh, in comparison to uh, what what could have been you know just just been been an executive or a, or or a professional working for you know for for the, for the company mm. so so that that actually uh, definitely um, has equipped me helped me uh, and um, strengthened me to to face uh, difficult situations um, at least in the corporate world for 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 the moment because that that is tested for now uh, yeah so yeah so i mean that's it's an incredible story because what you're you know you're talking about is this huge uh, risk this huge personal risk um that you're taking on at the same time as considerable professional change you know you're shifting from this corporate person mm. to become an entrepreneur oh and by the way i need to put my house on the line i need to put everything that i i thought and everything that i had um in at such pace um I mean, clearly, when you talk about it, there's there's been growth and the strength and the resilience um, through that. But it must have been it must have been a hard a hard time. It was also not that easy uh, because uh, when we migrated from uh, uh, executives to uh, let's say shareholders, uh, some others in our company did not because uh, you know although. Uh, it was a management buyout. Uh, not everyone uh, in the company had the ability to invest their personal funds in the uh, takeover, as well as uh, some of them obviously would opt out. Uh, so uh, the post-takeover period was very strange because before that, we were one team. And now suddenly we have become uh, not only the executives, but we also bec have become shareholders. Uh, so some others found us very different now. So, so I believe that uh, to some degree, uh, uh, for no fault of anyone, polarized the team as well. So we had to really work hard to put things back together because when, when this thing happened and, and also we suddenly become uh, shareholders from being executives, you can put a lot of uh, you know, uh, uh, things in the organization um, into a sort of test, like for example, the lines of stewardship, the agent principal, Chinese wall, so on and so forth, suddenly could disappear, and 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 the and the management could find themselves uh, in all over the place. So, so people will think that there's conflict of interest now, uh, and people will look at things uh, uh, between you know uh, shareholder executive and pure executive uh, group. Uh, uh, you know, in a in a sort of uh, any in an in an apprehensive uh, way, uh, you can't stop these things. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, time and effort uh, required to to keep the harmony going, keep the momentum going. When in reality, uh, the the status quo was not really continuing, uh, except that the business was actually continuing as normal, but. But um, the the whole uh, organization setting behavior really was uh, was little little different. Mm. And how long did that sort of take to settle down? Has it settled down? I suppose is the first question. And how long did it take? Uh, well, in the first year, it was not uh, not not all that easy. It's it's not just only um, the employee 
for the staff issue, uh, it was also uh, a journey. Now we have to go along with new set of shareholders as well. Uh, so we, we actually joined together for a purpose, but uh, we haven't been together before. Uh, so now we are sadly finding uh, so the traits and you know the objectives, the requirements of each one uh, with, with, with time. Uh, in fact, one of our, one of our um, shareholders was a private equity fund. So you can understand the private equity funds are very, very uh, short term um, or relatively short term in terms of their investment. So their investment horizons would range anything between three to five years. So they're in a mighty hurry to actually make a lot of money and you know go away. So you've got to balance them. And, uh, and initially we, we had a bit of like misunderstandings. Uh, so I had to spend a lot of time in keeping the board in the balance because as a PLC, the last thing that I would like to see is to have one or two resignations, uh, uh, especially uh, if that happens with the independent directors, it could actually hit uh, headlines in the business uh, newspaper. So, so, so there was a lot of actually juggling required, a lot of actually balancing required uh, in the shareholder board level apart from actually managing the status quo or managing the, uh, managing the uh, team. Uh, actually, we lost quite a, uh, I wouldn't say quite a lot, but few people, few uh, seniors as well in the process. Um, so, so it was a bit of a learning because frankly, we did not know how to do this best. Uh, we we try to actually um, understand this. We try to sort of you know listen to those who have done it before, but when you do it uh, in real life yourself, it could it could be a little different. So um, so I mean yeah. Well, since then we have actually expanded quite a lot. So we have uh, our team also has got expanded. So we've got quite a lot of new faces. So I would say even if we had the the team at that time continuing, we would actually be seeing them as a more minority now because it's almost six years since the change and uh, the, the company's uh, uh, headcount has increased. But um, I would say culturally, we, we are trying to sustain the same values we had. Uh, and also uh, our teams in the power plants uh, are very much there because they, they didn't get caught to this whole crossfire because for them it's actually a continuation of their operations. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't know how to actually answer that question as to whether it's settled down even right now. Um, I would say um, uh, the, the, the business has taken slightly a different phase and a different shape right now and uh, uh, there's quite a lot of inspired uh, uh, gentlemen uh, on board right now to actually take the organization forward. Mm. And what you're, I mean, what I'm hearing from you there is the multiple sort of facets of leading and learning as you, as you do, you know, you're learning as you go along very much in the moment, uh, which is, can be, you know, exceptionally exciting, but is, is really, can be really quite tiring. And that ability to step back uh, and look bigger picture, sort of look down, take a bit of time that you've talked about Oxford being, um, helping you to be able to do that must have been uh, really beneficial. 
um, during that time. What I'm going to ask you about, because we've heard a little bit about how you go about unlearning. I'm going to ask you now is about your deliberate practice in relearning, because your whole story is one about relearning and doing things differently. So how do you go about that in terms of a deliberate practice? Uh, yes. So um, I think the, as I said, um, the confidence, the resilience, um, you name it, the staying power, so on and so forth, that we were able to develop um, also has created that um, uh, never say no kind of attitude in the organization. So I think a lot of people in this organization right now have uh, uh, the ability to go through uh, difficult phases, enter into new terrains, new territories, without really knowing what the outcome would be confidently thinking that the outcome eventually will be positive. So that is all as a result of um, uh, that our ability to put together um, learning we've had uh, and, and, and the real on the job uh, learning that we actually got uh, through uh, the transformation we went through. So that I guess is not only in my DNA right now, and I'm sure quite a few senior members, our team would also be actually uh, having that, I would say, uh, the killer attitude. Uh, sometimes it could be actually a bit problematic because people start thinking too positively and too optimistically. And that can actually sometimes put you at great risk because you don't, really don't see the downside. In real life, there is uh, something called that you've got to take uh, calculated risk. So... Uh, yeah, so I think uh, we sort of emerge as a positive bunch of people through that whole relearning exercise. Uh, so much so that we feel that, you know, we can navigate through um, almost all challenges. Great. Yeah. And you've done that together, which um, is a brilliant way uh, to go about it, I think. Two, we've got two two final things to chat about, Kishan. Um the first of them is, what is your big leadership idea? Um, so right now, um, I'm heavily inspired by this whole sustainability leadership uh, um, idea. And uh, as you know, I, I think, um, uh, I'm sure we, we are hearing quite a lot of things about climate change, so on and so forth right now. Uh, so I think almost uh, almost all of us are aware of uh, dangers and you know eminent issues that we will encounter unless otherwise we make collectively some changes. So we we are in the brink of uh, potentially a sixth mass extinction, uh, which uh, we humans have manufactured, and uh, we have to find a solution uh, to that. Um, so that has actually uh, made me to sort of, you know, um, with the baby steps that I've taken, a thing that I would like to actually go on a uh, quite a sort of um, uh, um, long journey along with uh, what I'm learning right now. And it also is a space that has nice connectivity with my with our you know, renewable energy business. 
um, and we we and I also find actually this whole sustainability leadership space is a very very futuristic space. Not only uh, not only it's a it's it's very inspirational, but also it actually offers quite a lot of commercial and business opportunities. Uh, and, it, and it's a nice thing to actually, uh, whilst we do this interview, uh, to hear that, um, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, Elon Musk emerged as the world's richest man. Uh, well, I, I believe he's, uh, although we would mostly connect, uh, connected with uh, uh, sort of making Tesla cars, so, so a person who's actually into uh, automobile industry, uh, I believe he's, he considers himself, and, and we uh, also could sort of see the same thing, that he is heavily into the sustainable space because his cars eventually will uh, create a huge uh, floating uh, battery storage, which will help uh, uh, the renewable energy uh, space heavily. So now uh, that example, although I'm not actually... Uh, uh, on, on a sort of, you know, crusade to become, like, or, you know, trying to sort of, you know, showcase that I'm inspired by the world's richest man or anything of the sort. But but I, I just took that example to say that uh, the sustainability space gives uh, uh, tremendous commercial opportunities. So, so, so that's a good thing. So that, that actually uh, makes, um, um, lot of the other businesses who could uh, who could actually transform themselves to be sustainable leaders uh, and and help this whole journey now I guess one of the one of the uh, businesses uh, if I'm to quote an example that would find sustainability leadership challenging could be actually FMCG industry because FMCG industry depends on uh, consumption and consumption works against actually sustainability. But uh, we've seen quite a few um, uh, FMCG companies emerging as uh, sustainability leaders. Unilever is a classic example. And then Patagonia has gone actually uh, even <clears throat> a step further. Uh, being a, a FMCG company or a retailer, uh, to to really embrace sustainability leadership and and that works that has worked for them commercially as well so it's not actually uh, a space uh, that disconnect uh, with 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 the commercial aspects uh, of business so it, it can very much work hand in glove uh, so so I find actually uh, and I would like to invite everyone uh, to to think uh, in that context, perspectively, uh, in the individual business interest as well as to how each and every business could actually be uh, transformed into a sustainable business. Uh, so, so, so I, I, I would like, and I, I uh, would sort of promote uh, and invite everybody, everyone, to think through that. And, and, and that's, I believe, is uh, not only my big, uh, my big leadership idea, and it appears to be, I think, the big uh, global, global uh, leadership idea as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I um, you've set us a good challenge there um, about how we can consider that more uh, that transformation towards ever an ever increasing sustainable business. And even if we are in businesses that are sustainable, what what more can we do, and how can we adapt and continue to adapt? Um, is very much what I'm hearing from you. Um, I suppose if I was going to um, sum up the other things that I've heard about you, uh, Kishan, as a as a leader um, and as an individual uh, through this conversation, is um, your pragmatism uh, and your practical approach, your absolute clear resilience. You've been through a lot uh, professionally, and you put your personally on the line as well, um, and how successful that's been. And the confidence with which you you talk about it, um, even you know in the most difficult times, it seemed you seemed like you were following a fairly logical path. I must do this. Things must change. I've got to unlearn and I've got to relearn. Um, and that the strength that you show through those decisions and your approach is is great. And also one of the things I noticed is very important to be positive, but not too optimistic is I will uh, take away is a good thing um so thank you very much um for sharing all of that with us the final question that I'm going to ask you is what would be the soundtrack to your leadership journey um I wish it is actually a song called Seagull by Bad Company uh because I love love the melody but Lyrically, also, I think there's some level of connectivity. Uh, but I think lyrically, I find uh, Elton John's Skyline Pigeon connects more with my story. Uh, they both talk about the nature and redemption within the connotation of freedom. Uh, I feel Skyline Pigeon connects well with my sustainability passion, with uh, entrepreneurial freedom, which I eventually got as well. That's great. So it's a, it's a, I wasn't familiar with Skyline Pigeon. I'm not sure that he's one of his um, uh, best known, but it's one of his really early songs, isn't it? And the, it's very poetic. The lyrics are very poetic. Yes, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was from his first album. And I think uh, in the 70s, uh, um, I believe he, it was one of the mainstays in his uh, shows. Yeah. That's brilliant. Kishan, thank you so much for spending an hour with me and for sharing your story with everyone. Um, have you enjoyed the experience? Of course. It's really great. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me for this and enabling me to share my story. I hope uh, it can actually impact, at least in a small way, some kind of thinking amongst uh, those who would listen to it. Yeah, most definitely. There is a lot for us to think about and to take away. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.